0: Hey, it's Jay. Recently, I've decided to change up my media consumption habits. So for example, I've stopped reading my social media feeds. I'm still very active. I still respond to DMs and responses to my tweets or my posts, but I don't just consume the feed. I did a lot of pruning of who I follow. And I also created on Twitter, a private list of people who are not just shouty or angry or hunting for a quick injection of attention all the time. I also unsubscribed to a lot of YouTube channels, which posted shorter form, mostly timely or newsy videos, and I never watch cable news, which I think gives any human being a head start towards sanity in life, right? Things like social media and cable news are built on algorithms or ratings, respectively. The more frenetic and extreme they get, the more eyeballs they draw, and the more money they make. They are driven by ad sales. If you want to understand social media or cable news, just understand how they make their money through advertising. But I'm here to learn, to live my life, to maybe even leave the world a little bit better before I leave it for good. And I'm sure you feel the same way, at least in part. And so I decided to trim out all the consumption that was stressing me out while still somehow staying informed. And to do that, I embrace what I call slow media, newsletters, books, and of course, podcasts. Each of these things provides a whole lot more nuance than most content today. And that's in part why I've always loved this medium with podcasting, the nuance in most shows, the ability to go deeper and to really understand and explore, to turn things over and over in our minds and consider it from multiple angles, either between a host and the audience, or the host and the guests, or all the above. Few, if any, things are this versus that, one or zero, all good or all bad. But of course, if you've followed or been a part of American politics in the last few years, it's hard not to fall victim to this or that, one or zero, all good versus all bad. And that's why I'm so excited about our guest today and the work that she and her team are doing. Because not only does she help create one of the world's top shows in understanding democracy, but because they do it in such a way that they can explore the nuance of it all. And so naturally in this conversation, she imparts a ton of wisdom about how we can be more nuanced in our explorations too. I want to know how to do the things you do.
1: A thing, the two, or three that only comes from you. Ah, this is Three Clips.
0: This is Three Clips. I wouldn't lie to you. That would be a very bad decision. You're too smart, too kind. Too powerful a voice in the world today to start off our relationship that way, at least today. If you're just joining us, welcome. If you've come before, thank you. Welcome again. I'm emerging from my parental leave, so we're going to get back to the regular cadence of episodes. Uh, depending on when this one comes out, it may or may not be the first such episode. But we're back in action here on Three Clips. And again, this is Three Clips, I wouldn't lie. And I'm also Jay Aconzo. I'm an author, a speaker, and the host of the show, Unthinkable as well as this fine program, which is a Castos original series. And here, in this series, we ask our favorite podcasters to join us and break down their best work a few pieces at a time. Today, we talk to Jenna Spinelli from the podcast Democracy Works. It's a show from Penn State and their McCourtney Institute for Democracy. Jenna is a communications specialist for the institute and an instructor at the school. She's the co-host of Democracy Works, and she usually conducts the interview segments for each episode. She's also a freelance writer and one hell of a saxophone player. On Democracy Works, Jenna and her co-hosts seek to answer questions about what it actually means to live in a democracy, touching on topics like voting, criminal justice, free press, and they interview experts and people who work in the world of democracy, including academics and grassroots organizers. The show is a production of both the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and also WPSU Penn State and NPR Station and it's part of a collective of shows called the Democracy Group Network. The show features multiple host voices, including Jenna's, and episodes are published weekly, with each episode first starting with a discussion among co-hosts, then an interview segment, and then the reflection among those co-hosts on what we just heard. So, what does it take to create a show that explores the nuance of issues that most people seem to think have none? And how does Jenna build bridges between, let's admit it, the often stuffy or inaccessible world of academia and the average citizen who wants to understand, to grow, and to make things better? We get into all of that, but first, let's meet our guest, Jenna Spinelli. I wanted to start in the place that we, our relationship started, actually, Jenna. So you're pretty involved in podcasting overall like the community sense to podcasting uh is wonderful depending on which pocket you might occupy and i feel like you're a big participant uh, in that community and a and a leader of it uh, so can you just describe what you do away from democracy works and also why
2: sure uh so i have always been a writer uh, my background is in journalism i've always done freelance writing uh, and in the past couple of years, I have had the opportunity to write about podcasts for outlets like the Bello Collective and Podcast Movements and Timber Media. Um, I just really felt like I had something to say on my own. And like there were a lot of other really interesting stories to tell um, the sort of genesis or, or how it all started was at the podcast movement conference in 2018 uh, which was in philadelphia that year not far from where i live in pennsylvania so i went i had only we'd only been doing our show for less than six months at that time i was still pretty new to the the podcasting world and community but i i remember sitting in a presentation um from tom webster who works at, at edison research yeah. he is very much a guru in in podcasting and you know know, leader in the community, and he was talking about um, how we all as podcasters, you know, everybody's focused on audience growth and getting more listeners, but we as a collective need to work on expanding the overall listener pool and bringing new people to the medium as a whole, not just to your individual show. And that really struck a chord with me because I was thinking about the the world that I occupy in higher education and all the different audiences that we touch, you know, students, faculty, alumni, prospective students, parents, all of these people who some might listen to podcasts, but some might not. And so that kind of the spark this idea of what can higher ed do to bring more listeners to podcasts through shows that are produced by colleges and and, and universities. That was kind of the first piece that I wrote about podcasting, and it just sort of snowballed from there.
0: Well, that's a great transition into the clips, I think, because the first clip we pulled um, does a nice job of setting up why the topic is important, which essentially is you know making history relevant to today and, and giving a hopeful look to our current state of chaos, which I know is a big premise driving democracy works. But I think you know what we especially liked when we pulled the clip was the metaphor you use, which is a, an example of you trying to think through the interestingness, the angle, the bridging of the gap perhaps between someone super academic or steeped in academia and others. That might listen Uh, and just to give some context before we play the clip. So this is from an episode about achieving democracy's ideals, uh, which features an interview with Danielle Allen, who is an expert in the field from Harvard. And this clip comes at the very beginning of the episode in the segment where you, Jenna, and your co-hosts, Chris Beam and Candace Watts-Smith are discussing the topic at hand before getting into the interview um, that you had with the guest And in the clip, you just mentioned two large-scale projects that Daniel Allen is leading that look at the future of American democracy. And so we come into this uh, with you speaking, followed by your co-host, Chris Beam. So let's play the clip.
2: These are our separate projects, but I think both born out of the same general idea, which is that we are at a period of crisis in American democracy, which we've, of course, talked about many times on this show before. But... I know you guys, I'm doing a lot of home renovations right now. And it it (laughs) comes to mind that uh, we need to kind of take this thing down to the studs. That was sort of what I took from a lot of the arguments that are in these two documents. It's the time for big, bold, transformational changes.
3: Oh, that's an interesting metaphor. (laughs) I mean, Candace and I were talking before we hit the red button that we are in a crisis and things are precarious. Right now, but with every crisis comes an opportunity. And every time there's been a leap to a new plateau in terms of our conception, our living out of our democracy, it's always been premised by a crisis, right? So the Civil War amendments came as a result of the Civil War, and the Civil Rights era came as a result of riots and other forms of civil disobedience. And so this moment where things seem so dire in terms of polarization and a lack of any sense of common purpose or common identity with those in the other tribe creates a crisis and also an opportunity as well. How can we rediscover our common purpose and what are the practical means by which we get there?
0: God, I go, I go through so many emotions. Like I'm I'm bouncing between the two extremes of, Oh my gosh, yes. I needed to hear this. I needed to hear that the history is littered with terrible thing and an innovation or an improvement right after it. I needed to hear that. Like we're going through this moment. Let's acknowledge it. It's hard to find common ground, but that's the opportunity. And maybe we'll come out of it. And then I go back to the other extreme, which is like, I'm tired of hearing people acknowledge it. And I just want to do something and solve it. Uh, is the marching order of the show? Is the reason you do these little preambles to try and give people hope and speak to us directly?
2: Yeah, I, I think that certainly is it, and it's kind of it just as a way to kind of frame the the issue that we're talking about for the listener. Sometimes it is to kind of evoke that that emotional response right at the the outset. Sometimes it's a, a pretty complicated topic that we need to just you know our um Michael and Chris and Candace my co-hosts really put on their professor hats and kind of explain it a little bit um you know much like they would teaching at an undergraduate class or or something like that mm-hmm. um
0: So you're the proxy for the listener. Yes. That's the role you yes. play.
2: Yes. Yeah, and so I try to rein them in. Although they they've gotten really, really good uh, over the three years we've been we've been doing the show, and as I've you know continued to share listener feedback and things with them about who's listening, what you know what they're looking for out of the show, and all of that, they're able to kind of use that and 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 hone in on it. And that's this Danielle Allen episode really I think speaks directly to that. Um, I would put our audience into three main categories. one is you know people within the academy, whether it 's faculty or or graduate students or undergrads or students who listen to our show as part of a, a class assignment, things like that. Um, the second are those sort of grassrootsy people I was mentioning before, just the everyday citizen who is concerned and usually finds out about us through some organization that they're involved with, whether it's working on gerrymandering or ranked choice voting or getting money out of politics. There's a, a whole host of, of groups out there um, along those lines. And then the third is what We sometimes call on the show the democracy industry. So people in philanthropy and, you know, those. You know, some in in some cases there are some you know social enterprises that are democracy focused, like venture funds to help make apps for voting, or you know th- those those types of of things. So yeah. I know those people listen to us as well to kind of keep their pulse on the ideas that are out there, and you know how they can then take those ideas and 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 monetize them, or you know make make something in sort of the, the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. space.
0: How do you navigate? The it's it's so fraught, I feel, because you have these colleagues, these co-hosts who are the academics are the ones who have done the research and a lot of writing and maybe even hold the relationships, perhaps for some of the guests, probably the the visible, most visible personalities on the show. Right. So they're very caught up in the identity of the show and its success and. Um, let's just come out and say it, they're academics. They probably think very highly of their own intellects. Like, who doesn't? I host two podcasts. I mean, my God. So, like, you're navigating egos. You're navigating, you know, the fact that they do have to somewhat be the faces of the show. And yet, it it feels to me like you have to sit there and provide some guardrails and goalposts and, you know, maybe follow up with some questions or provide those metaphors. As you're sitting there in the room listening to them, what goes through your mind? How do you spot those opportunities? Are they earmarked ahead of time? Are you doing it in the moment? Just like, how do you do what you do? It seems such a vital part of this show, but a very delicate one.
2: Yeah, yeah, and uh, two out of the three co-hosts are also my bosses, which is a whole other <laughs> dynamic we could we could talk about. Um, but I mean, some of it is kind of planned. We don't script. The show, but we do have a, a, an outline type of thing that we work from. So the usually the thing that we talk about the most is how how I'm going to set them up. So I always introduce the guest and say their title and you know their book or or, or whatever it is they're on to talk about, and then I say something that then is sort of the opening salvo for them to to then respond to. So we usually do have have a pretty clear sense of of what that is and and beyond that is just piping up and saying hey what about this what about that and and some of it is like that balance of you know let, knowing when when to cut them off and when not to knowing that i can do editing after the fact uh so the you know academics love to go down rabbit holes and um sometimes it's interesting but uh, you know what what i often do in in the editing room is you know, they'll start somewhere kind of meander in the middle and then bring it back around. So I cut that middle part out a lot. (laughs) It makes the show tighter. And yeah, yeah, kind of keeps keeps that flow going. So it's, yeah, being strategic about when to speak up, but knowing that I can take care of, of a lot of it after the fact also.
0: Are there things that you've tried to continually remind them of? Like, were you for a period of time, like, we're going to work on examples here. Like let's get out of theory and give examples. And you're just beating that drum for a while, like what have you gone through or what are you focused on recently? Cause I imagine as someone who is thinking about podcasting as like the primary and democracy and these subjects as the secondary and they're the reverse, right? The subject for them is the lead and being a podcaster is secondary. There's probably these little things that you have to just start building into their muscle memory, right? Like have you gone through those little iterations of them? Like you're engineering them in a way.
2: Yeah, yeah. An ongoing conversation is veering away from sort of the scholarly Aspects of things and into just like punditry and horse race type of things. And that's, that's tough because I think we all listen to those punditry types of podcasts. And of course, watching, you know, cable news and reading hot takes online and all of these things, it's, it's, it's very tempting, especially if you think about these issues deeply to, to just want to sort of get caught up in all of that. So I often find myself bringing them back from the okay like we're not going to be pod save america for example like pod save america already does that way better than we ever will (laughs) so let's focus on what we can do and what's
0: that and and by the way what is that that they do uniquely well that you're avoiding
2: um what 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 pod save america does
0: yeah yeah just define for me what what they do like what's their purpose as as opposed to what what your purpose is
2: Sure. So it's, I think, just talking about the a lot of the political power structure and the the people involved in it and the, you know, Democrats, this Republicans, this and this senator and this congressperson and this, you know, just getting caught up in like, oh, Joe Manchin's voting down the filibuster and like all of the all of like that kind of stuff. And whereas our strength is taking a step back and saying, okay. well, what is the filibuster? For example, why is it important? Why why is it something that's so contested? And let's look at the history of it and let's look at, you know, what it says about the the relationship to who holds power and how political decisions get made. Not the partisan fight of the day about team red and team blue and who's going to to win or lose, but the the bigger, deeper questions about these institutions and, and and structures and and why they matter for our democracy and our system of government.
0: Let's head to the the next clip. So uh, this clip is going to come from the middle of the interview because I do want to hear from your guest who I mentioned up top, but we haven't heard from yet, Daniel Allen. Um, and in this portion of the clip, you're talking about the need for us all to work towards bridging the political divides in our currently very polarized situation. Uh, And so we're going to come into this clip with you asking a question of Danielle Allen about the tactics to approach this work. Here's the clip.
2: Does this type of work you're describing require that everyone involved have a certain measure of good faith? I think where I see some of these things break down sometimes is you know people on the left might say that, oh, I'm not going to try to work on with anybody from the far right because they're conspiracy theorists or they're in some way operating in bad faith. I'm wondering how you think about some of those types of things.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's a challenge because it's very obvious in our political universe that there are people operating in bad faith. I mean, we can see them, right? You know, sort of various kinds of disinformation campaigns, propaganda campaigns, and so forth. So the hard thing to do is to recognize that the people who are actually operating in bad faith are a very, very small minority. And so one does have to start by presuming good faith on the part of others and then work hard to discern and to have criteria for discerning the difference between those who truly are acting in bad faith and the others who are acting in good faith, but have a very different perspective on things. So I think in in that regard, that's probably the first step is simply to build up criteria for discerning between those who truly are bad faith actors and everybody else. Mm -hmm.
2: And what might some of those criteria be, do you think? Uh,
1: That's a fair question. (laughs) Having just said that, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer because I think it's work that we need to do.
0: Jenna, what do you notice about that moment and what's going on?
2: Yeah, so uh, Danielle, uh, she we caught her hot on the promotional junket for this Our Common Purpose project, uh, and so she had been doing a lot of uh, virtual events and 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 interviews about this. And uh, you know, I can tell, as I'm sure any good host can, when somebody is on their set of of talking points that they have about whatever <laughs> friend, their thing is yeah. that they're doing. A friend of mine, uh, who's I, an I author.
0: Uh, a friend yeah. of mine who's an author, Ron Tite, he, he talks about... He's, he's also an agency, agency executive. So he's surrounded by his fair share of buzz buzzwords and jargon. He calls that getting pitch slapped. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and I don't I don't begrudge it. I mean, it's just sort of what you have to do in today's media ecosystem. It's, it's not enough to just, you know, talk to a couple, you know, do a newspaper interview and, and go on a TV show. You have to go on a dozen podcasts and talk to, you know, 10 newsletter writers and all, all of these things. So I I, I don't begrudge that. But what what I listen for as an interviewer are opportunities to get people off of those talking points, and that's really what happened when I asked about. Can you give me some examples of what the criteria might be to figure out who's acting in in bad faith or not? Uh, this is also something that that academics tend. To do is just that that just like if you're lecturing in a class, you have a certain set of points you want to make. And you, if you've done it for a while, you can anticipate what questions students are going to have. And so it's really, it takes a question kind of out of left field that you're not expecting to kind of, you know, makes you just take that step back and say, Oh, I guess I really need to put some more thought into this, or just just admitting that you don't have an answer, which which doesn't always happen either.
0: (laughs) Do you get you know, she she kind of n- laughed knowingly at what you were trying to do, I think. Um, you know, that's a totally fair question. I don't have a good answer. It's the work we're doing. That was kind of her response in, in brief. Um, when you challenge is perhaps a strong word, but I think in some ways it comes across as challenging tactfully, of course, uh, or request <laughs> that we bring down the theory to reality. Um, do these very academic, important people that you're talking to Respond well. I mean, what do you? How do you handle those moments where maybe they don't have like their go-to six or seven answers because they're not necessarily like speaking to the masses most days? And here you are trying to bring it to non-academics.
2: Yeah, I think most people are they they have enough humility to realize what they don't know or sort of where their blind spots are. And I I have had you know when I whenever I follow up with the guests to say hey here's the episode you know the kind of standard follow up there like hey i've i've been thinking thinking about this more or, or sometimes we'll have like a sidebar conversation about different organizations they could connect to or, or ways that they as scholars can work more with people on, on the ground. So uh, over the years we've been doing the show, we sort of become bridge builders in in that way too, between people who are studying this these things and people who are, are doing the work on the ground. Um, but no, I've, I've never had anybody, I don't think sort of, push back or say that's that's an unfair question or, or you know why should i know that because i think at the end of the day academics are citizens too they're 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 people too they they also they do this because they're intellectually curious about it but they also I think in, in most cases are are personally interested and in, and passionate about the things that they're studying and, and really want to figure out how to keep that progress moving forward.
0: Right, right. When you are dealing with a dense subject or somebody who is incredibly well-versed, you know, spending years and years of their lives on something and then they appear on your show, you know, it's almost like I, I've done a lot of like documentary style or narrative style podcasts and and video series and I'm very aware that what I'm doing is trying to uh, capture the truth while admitting that it's going to be a very rough approximation. Like everything you do is derivative, like fitting the entire lifetime of someone into your runtime, for example, you're making trade-offs. And so it's not actually the truth. So you have this body of work and body of knowledge that a guest like Danielle has how do you dive into that and prep for these interviews to try and pick out like, what do I ask her? Where do I go? Because you're going to have to throw out most of it.
2: Yeah. So there's, I, I over the years, I've come to think of it like a Venn diagram. Uh, on the one side of it is what the guest wants to talk about or what they're the expert in. And then the other side is kind of the, the the premise or what our show's about, and I'm looking for that spot in the middle. And I, I don't know that I have a, a more fully articulated way of or, or a set list of, of things that I do to get to that point, it just sort of has has developed over time. And now it's although it has changed the way that I read books and, and articles and things that these people write. I, I'm yeah. not necessarily reading for for comprehension or because I need to like know every single thing. In it, which was something that I at the, at the very beginning, that was really my approach. With okay, I need to know all the things that they know so I can have a good conversation <laughs> with them. But that that's not the case at all. I need to know the things that I think are interesting to me as a proxy for the listener that I want to then follow up with them about, and and hopefully. My, my goal is to have at least one question in every interview that it's something that the person hasn't been asked or doesn't get asked often it's right. kind of outside that, that traditional set of, of things that they, they talk about. Um,
0: yeah. I'm latching onto the phrase bridge builder of like when you're, especially, you know, we've talked to science communicators on the show before when you're steeped in the academia, the world of academia, or just the academic knowledge of the subject It can be tricky to build that bridge. Last question while we're on this clip. What are you saying, if anything, to your guests to let them in on that, to prepare them to act more like a bridge builder? Because I have to imagine that Danielle is writing for academic journals and talking to her peers and doing a lot of things where she's on one side of the bridge and talking to people also on that side of the bridge. And now she's appearing on a show or other guests are where you're trying to march them across that bridge. So do you prepare them at all for that ahead of time?
2: Um, so usually whenever I'm setting up an interview, I will give the, the guests uh, an overview of who the audience is, sort of those three groups that I, I outlined earlier. Uh, and that is helpful for them to, to frame it. But, um, you know, someone someone like Danielle, it is true, she is a, a very well regarded scholar in, in her field, but she also writes a lot for the sort of popular or, you know, mainstream outlet. She writes for The Atlantic and, um, you know, regularly she's been on all types of, of, of media projects. So she's one that I think gets it inherently. Yeah. But but some people who maybe don't do as much media or are not as heavily invested in public scholarship or or whatever the political science analog of science communication is, um, you know, people who are not as heavily invested in that world sometimes need a bit more framing, which which I'm happy to provide.
0: let's go to the third and final clip. So this clip comes towards the end of the episode. And uh, it's in a section where co-hosts Chris Beam and Candace Watts-Smith are discussing their thoughts on what was said in the interview. So now you understand there's like a bit of a framing device that goes on. You have the uh, co-host and you discussing things ahead of time and coming back after to reflect on the interview that was in the middle. And we're going to come into this clip just after Candice asked Chris to share his thoughts about Daniel Allen's two big projects, which were the topic of your conversation in the interview, Jenna. Uh, and then we begin to hear from Candice.
3: Yeah. So they're both chock full of ideas and practical proposals. And all of them have a certain measure of controversy to them. But the one that resonated with me was this idea, and I think it's the first one, in the, our common purpose is to expand the House of Representatives. And I think most people will hear that and say, we can't do that. It's set. And it is set. It's set by a law that was passed in 1929. And it was passed by a Congress that was worried about demographic changes that were putting too much power in the cities." So when you hear people talking about, well, we're not a democracy, we're a republic, and that's why the Electoral College is the way it is, that's just simply not true. That decision was made by U.S. representatives and senators who are all Republican, who wanted to maintain power. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's no reason why it cannot be changed. And if you want to make the House and the Senate both more representative, not to mention the Electoral College. One way to do that is to expand the House and make it more representative than one for every 750,000 Americans. So perhaps. What we, about you?
1: One of them that stood out to me was that there is a really broad vision and understanding of citizenship.
0: Jenna, can you talk about that? About how your co-hosts do seem to understand we're now on the other side of the bridge. Right. And we're trying to relate it to people like, like me.
2: Yeah. I think this is where they draw a lot on their experience as teachers uh, because that's, that is an anecdote that I, I, I think Chris would or perhaps already has talked about in one of the the classes he teaches and so uh it, while the the audience of, of our show some of them are are, are maybe the the majority are, are not students in in the technical sense they are students in the the broader sense of the word of, of tuning in because they want to learn uh, things about how our de- democratic system works. And they tell us that pretty explicitly when we ask them about it. Um, and so I think that that thread is always running through their mind. Uh, and that's just something the, the way that I don't know if this is something that comes through getting like the the training you get when you get a phd that you sort of think this way in terms of the these examples and always tying things back or if it's a skill you develop over time i've never I've never explicitly asked them <laughs> about that but they 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 do it a lot and i think our listeners are are definitely better off for it and i did not have to prompt them for that mm. either they just sort of i hit record or the the red button as chris says and uh, they just they just <laughs> go
0: It'd be interesting. I, I mean, I think people, especially as they listen more over time, love the behind-the-scenes. Like to get them on the microphone and just chat about their approach to the, to the material mm. could be revealing. And it, it, you know, if nothing else, you get deeper with your existing listeners, like relationship-wise. But perhaps you also inspire folks who listen, uh to to, mm. to maybe do the same if they're not right, like the people who are stuck on one side of the bridge, so to speak. Um. So just just a thought. I think it'd be that could be kind of cool. Um, I, I'm curious about this movement that maybe some academics make and some don't and where you see your show on this spectrum. Um, I've developed this before. I I teach it. I've written about it. I call it the style spectrum, which is essentially like how the personality, how the people involved in hosting the show, the talent can influence how resonant the show is because there's other pieces of the show, right? There's the premise, there's the format. It's, you know, there's a, a lot of moving parts, but what about the people Speaking into the microphone, how do they influence the overall experience? And I think you can kind of move up this spectrum. So if you kind of for listeners here, if you picture it, this vertical bar, the, it all sits on top of the base and the base is record, uh, reported facts, like correctly reported, factually correct information. But if that's your show, if you're just collecting what happened in the week that was in whatever politics or whatever, and that's it, you're just sharing those facts, very limited utility. And you, the person, the talent are incredibly removed because all you're doing, you're basically a mouthpiece. Like it could be AI reading this to you. It could be Siri. It it wouldn't matter because you're just like, here's the bunch of facts. That's it. Um, And you start to move from that to analysis which is where I think you start to connect facts and contextualize those facts and say, oh, this, this did happen in the past. And that kind of resembles this thing. And, you know, this is what could happen in the future. You're analyzing the facts. And then you start to get a little bit more involved in this third wave of your involvement, which is or a little bit more present, I should say, in this third piece of the spectrum, which is you start to opine. So what could happen turns into what you think should happen. You know, what it might mean is what this is what I it, it does mean in my mind right? It's, you're very present. And then I think the final piece is inspiration. So from opinion to inspiration, I think the difference between the two is it's not moving from, you know, could to should to an Instagram post that has a nice quote that, you know, inspires you. No, 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 no. It's moving from this could happen. I'm analyzing to this should happen. I'm opining to let's make it happen. Like you move from possibility to action. You spark action when you inspire people. So you think about those, those four pieces, and again, they all build up from each other. Correctly reported facts, smart analysis, connecting facts and contextualizing facts, opinions, and then inspiration to spark action. Where are you guys on that spectrum? And where's the ideal?
2: Mm. Uh, that's that's really interesting. Uh, I think that we definitely are above just, just reporting facts. We definitely do, do a, a good job I think of, of providing that that context that 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 analysis um, I hope that we're we're inspirational. I know a lot of what we talk about can be sort of dark sometimes but um, we, we do uh, you know um, again look to, to history and and other other examples of people out there people like Danielle Allen who have have a vision for how things can and and should be, Different, So trying to give voice to that whenever we can. Um, and then, yeah, I wouldn't say that we are explicitly inspiring people, at least not often. There there are sometimes, depending on, on what the guest is doing, I'll ask them, what can everyday people do about this? Or, um, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. we do have people on representing organizations that are working on specific causes like i said about gerrymandering and opening up primaries and and those types of things so but more I, of, I what you're saying
0: essentially jenna is because I, I heard a little bit of a contradiction there mm-hmm. it's more of like an implied inspiring it's like the now that you have this information perhaps you take it upon yourself to go and act it you're not urging action through the show
2: that's right. That's right. Got it. And and I think too to, to what you were saying, Jay, about the, the the hosts and sort of what they bring to, to the table and, and their perspective. This is really I, I know we didn't hear a ton from Candace in these clips, but I think that she brings a, a really interesting perspective to the show. And she was the the first person that we sort of added to our team by choice. So when Michael and Chris and I started we were the three of us who were on the team that we didn't go out and find other hosts or, you know, what have you. But, um, you know, Candace is a scholar of, of of racism and, and social justice movements and, and these, these types of things. And she's also younger. She's closer to my age than, than to Michael and Chris's. So she brings a different generational perspective. And she's also, I forget the tagline on, on her website, but it's something about, you know optimistic believer in a more equitable society or, or or you know something along those lines so she definitely sort of acknowledges the the struggles that we still have for equity and inclusion but she also very much believes that we can get there and i think that that's a perspective she brings a lot she's often you know, whenever Michael and Chris sort of tend to go down the path of, Oh, we're doomed, nothing's ever gonna change, she's like, No, I disagree, actually. <laughs> I think it can <laughs> and I think that it's a self fulfilling prophecy that the you know, the more we say things are not going to change, of course they're not going to. Yeah. we need to shift that mindset first.
0: When you think about the long arc of the show, you've come a long way. Uh, We've talked without a microphone in front of each of us, although I guess because everything has been virtual for the last 18 months, we had some kind of microphone between us, but it wasn't recording for purposes of public sharing. But to share a little bit of what we talked about is like you really pushing the show across that bridge has been a theme every time we talk. And I'm curious, you know, no matter how great you are now in any project for built by anybody, over time stagnation is a real problem if you just do the same thing the same way. So what are you looking to try to reinvent, to improve, to to keep the show um, not only serving its existing passionate audience, but all the way back to the top of this conversation to help them reach, to help you reach a, a, a broader, if relevant audience. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I think we're continuing to think about ways that we can expand our pool of of faculty, hosts and maybe even bring in some other people to do to do interviews. You know, I don't I have done them all historically, but would be happy to cede the interviewer's chair to to someone else. We've also started in the the past year having Michael and Chris do some interviews. Um, They just bring a, a different lens to things. You know, there is a whole other world of how people think about democracy, more of democracy as a way of life, as opposed to a a political thing and in political institutions. So that's, that's a perspective that I'm interested in learning more and sort of figuring out how to get to on our show, like, what does democracy look like outside of politics? So I play in a community band, for example, which is, a, and a, you know, one way that, you know, it's a, a group with a, a shared interest, but very different ideas about how to achieve that interest sometimes. And so what, how can we talk more about that side of, of democracy and, and maybe less about the sort of political machinery of it all?
0: Jenna, some people send swag or thank you notes, which is, you know, nice. I like that people do that for their guests to say thank you. But let's be honest, it's going to sit on a shelf till you don't feel guilty anymore and you're going to throw in the trash. So we're going to save on emissions. We're going to save on the landfill. So what I'd love to do is give you, in your name, place a small donation uh, as a way of saying thank you to nokidhungry.org. Jenna, thank you so much, not only for coming on the show, but for doing this show that you do because damn do we need it. So thank you so much, Jenna.
2: Oh, thanks, Jay. This has been fun.
0: Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Cherie Turner with original theme music by Cardboard Rocketship. You can learn more about my projects, including my free newsletter for creative people, my books, my other podcast, Unthinkable, and my course on podcast development at jayacunzo.com three clips is a castos original series castos is developing tools not only for you to host and create your own personal and public podcast but also private podcasts they're betting heavily that you and i as podcasters believe that podcasts are for resonance not just reach for depth in a world trending shallow. And so they provide tools for us to go deeper into the themes, topics, and stories that we hold dear on our shows, giving us tools to create super fans and community around the show through private podcasting. So you can check out their tools for public or private shows at castos.com. That's C-A-S-T-O-S.com. And thank you for the team over there for making this show possible. All of these links, as always, are in your show notes. Okay, now it's time for our bonus segment where every episode we ask our guest for a podcast they'd recommend that is not at the top of the charts, a show they'd like to show some love to. We call this segment, Play It Forward.
2: So uh, I would highly recommend listening to a show called Happy Valley Hustle, which is produced by my friend and colleague, Bill Zimmerman, who is a professor in the Advertising and Public Relations Department at Penn State, also very much a a creative and content-driven entrepreneur himself. But he he is a a really great interviewer. I pick up tips from him all the time. But he, the, the 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 premise of his show is kind of breaking down this notion that innovation and entrepreneurship can only happen in big cities. It happens right here in State College, Pennsylvania, which is also called Happy Valley, which is where we're both based. Um, so he has people on from our local community, but he's also expanded to include other small town kind of innovators, entrepreneurs. Um, my favorite episode that. That he did. So the um, Philadelphia Flyers mascot Gritty. I don't know if you guys know Gritty or hopefully listeners can, oh, can conjure I, Gritty. Or I know Google Gritty. Him. I know
0: Gritty because if, and if you picture him, you know why I'm going to say this. I know Gritty because he haunts my dreams, Jenna. <laughs> what is that thing? <laughs>
2: Well, uh, if you listen to to Happy Valley Hustle, Bill did an interview with the designer who created Gritty. He actually lives right here in central Pennsylvania. So he talked all about the inspiration and how he worked with the Flyers team to to iterate. It's it's fascinating. Um, So that, you know, Gritty was born out of a small town solopreneur, not from some big city ad agency. And those are the types of stories that Bill tells on Happy Valley Hustle.
0: All right, that's it for this episode. As always, I'm your host, Jay Akunzo, and I firmly and passionately believe this work we do as podcasters and creators, it's not about who arrives. We're so obsessed with the numbers. More, greater reach. Can can we get like 700,000 downloads for our show every episode? Oh my God, no. It's not about who arrives. It's actually about who stays. Nothing good happens unless we build an audience or a passionate community of listeners around our shows. It's all about who stays. So thank you so much for staying with us. And I'll talk to you every Monday with a brand new episode of the show. See ya.